We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 232. Our guest today is the most decorated driver in the United States. At 18, he was the youngest driver to be named to the U.S. equestrian team for the World Paris Driving Championship. He has earned 12 consecutive wins after advancing to the found-in-hand divisions in 1999. In 2008, he made history by becoming the first American to win an individual silver medal in the four-in-a-hand FEI World Driving Championships. He has won four silver medals at the World Equestrian Games and a historic team gold in 2018, not to mention he is an 18-time USEF four-in-hand national champion and regularly ranks in the top three for FEI world rankings. That is quite the list. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Chester Weber. Well, I would love to hear what first brought you to the horse world. Uh, so I grew up into it or I was born into it, I guess. Uh, so I guess that would come from like, I chose my genetics wisely. Um, mother and father was, uh, had a horse racing operation. Um, and so I grew up to that. Uh, my mother bought the farm, Wild Oak Stud, uh, where I currently live, um, in her sort of mid twenties. And, um, when I graduated from Cornell university, uh, I was freezing cold. I was doing horses and it seemed logical to move to Florida. After all, everybody's going to move to Florida at some stage, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you there growing up in the Midwest. I, once I moved to warmer climate, I'm like, nope, can't do those winters anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So going from kind of growing up in the more of like the racing world, what got you connected to driving? Uh, great question. So wanted to be a jockey when I was growing up. Uh, I am six foot uh, two, you know, 210 pounds. That's not going to work. <laughs> uh, that dream left me around 11. And, uh, you know, here I am. Uh, my dad got, my dad is sort of a bigger guy like me, got given a Clydesdale horse because we had some sort of riding horses on the farm that were quarter horses, which are typically, you know, just over the size of a pony. And he always felt like, I feel like a big guy to be riding this little horse. And, you know, being used to being around 16 hand thoroughbred horses. And uh, so we got a Clydesdale horse. And of course, the Clydesdale horse was terribly naughty and bucked people off. So then uh, instead of doing the logical things, of, which is find a wonderful Clydesdale gentle giant horse that you can ride, which should be actually the easiest thing based on what I know about Clydesdale horses. Instead of doing that, we got a carriage and said, well, you can't ride this horse, so we'll drive it. No way. Um, so we did that for a while. And at one stage, my dad was always sort of distracted looking at this or that on the farm when we'd go for drives. And I just said to him at one stage, well, why don't I drive and you tell me where to go and then you can look at whatever you want to look at. And so we did that together, uh, you know, when I was, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old, something like that. Wow, that's so cool. Now today, you are the most decorated driver in the US. 
that's a compliment. Thank you. Yes, that's so that's amazing. When you were just kind of like starting out, how how kind of like walk me through, maybe give me a little driving for dummies. How do you kind of start? Like what are the steps to get into it, to practice? How much of like working with the horses or riding are you doing? What does that all look like? Sure. So it's all about the horses. And I was um, passionate about working with horses when I was a little kid. The challenging thing with a family that has a thoroughbred uh, racing, breeding and training operation is little kids and thoroughbred racehorses typically don't mix very well together. Yeah. Um, so then we got into Clydesdale horses, which are these sort of wonderful gentle giants uh, and grew up going to sort of Midwestern fairs, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, all these fairs showing Clydesdale horses. And we're sort of a wonderful group of salt of the earth people um, involved in draft horses uh, many of them came from the Midwest and they were great sort of people to to grow up around. And then as I went through the ranks of driving, not to say driving a Clydesdale or draft horses isn't challenging. It, it comes certainly with its own challenges with driving, you know, up to six and eight, eight hitches. But uh, it seemed to be the logical progression, if you may, you know, liken it to race car driving or something like that. The Formula One of, of, you know, driving a horse or carriage driving is, uh, is combined driving. So I wanted to get into that. Um, and so at 13, I was introduced to a gentleman named Jimmy Faircloud, who was uh, sort of my first teacher and mentor in the combined driving. And I had my first, I think I did my first show at 13 and, uh, carried on through the ranks. And I think by the time I was, uh, 21 or something, I was fifth in the world rankings with a pair and, uh, Sort of haven't haven't ever looked back. Amazing. At what point was was there a certain point in your life that you were like, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna do this for a while. Like I think I'm gonna have this be a big part of my life or be my career. Yeah, I think uh, so. My freshman year at Cornell, I made the U.S. team the first time. I was very young to do that, and uh, seemed to be able to balance a you know a, a studying academic life and uh, a driving life. And so that all went well. Um, and when I graduated from Cornell, I'd moved uh, to Ocala because our family had this farm. But I still, my parents were, uh, you know, there was no way, you know, you, you, that's your passion, that's your interest, that's your hobby, but that's not going to be your job. I went and worked for uh, Seminole Feed. Greg Branch and the team there gave me uh, a job out of college and I helped sort of in a marketing role uh, there. And then at one stage, uh, we were traveling quite a bit, uh, driving horses, and uh, that kind of became my my primary focus, and uh, it just seemed like the logical thing to do. What would you say to someone who is finishing up high school, thinking that they want to you know, have a career in riding, trying to decide if they want to go right into that or go to college? What is your kind of stance on um, education before you know, trying this out as a professional? I think that, you know, there's no right answer for everybody. It's just like there's no right answer for, for every horse. You know, follow your heart, figure out what's, what's right for you. The one good thing about an education, I had a father who was a university professor, so it was like education was no choice. It was mandated. But uh, I think the one good thing about uh, prioritizing your, you know, uh, higher education or university education is, you know, nobody can ever take that degree away from you. Um, so it doesn't matter if you continue to do horses like I did. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you'd be surprised. Um, you're able to relate things you learn in university. And there are lots of successful people in the horse world who uh, have different academic degrees. And uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. For those of us who maybe don't know a lot about it, can you give us a rundown of what combined driving is? Sure. So liken it a little bit to three-day eventing and riding. And I realize that some people don't know what that is, but think about uh, a triathlon uh, in horse sport. Uh, The roots of combined driving come out of the military and a horse's sort of use in the military. So the first day is dressage. That would have to do with military horses, pageantry work, parade work, um, you know, official business, dignitary kind of work, lots of pomp and circumstance, polished up, can work uh, really well together. So that's the dressage part. Uh, in combined driving, the dressage part is takes place in an arena that's 100 meters by 40, about the size of a football field, five judges around. There are 18, 20 movements. They judge... Uh, each movement that you have to do with the horses uh, on a scale of one to 10, not unlike figure skating. And uh, you get a, you know, an overall score at the end of the, uh, the dressage test, um, completely subjective based on the opinion of those five, uh, five judges. Fast forward next day of the sport comes from the roots of the horses sort of war or uh, battle sort of, Uh, necessity and that uh, is represented by the cross-country marathon so today that's a seven eight uh, nine mile uh, track or or journey uh, over hill and dale through water around lots of obstacles Um, and unlike the dressage it's all subjective somebody's opinion this is all objective this is the fastest person in you know seven or eight different obstacle zones wins the technical nature of that uh, is, and it depends on each of the obstacles, typically from the course designers, a little bit different test, not unlike jumping, where, you know, the combination is uh, a test of, you know, rideability and control, and whereas a water jump or a triple bar may be uh, a test of, you know, power and um, more than agility. Um, so the the design, the job of the course designer is to create a track that kind of that helps the horses, helps you know uh, evaluate the horse's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, so that's likened to the sort of the battle work of a horse. And then the third day uh, is modeled after three day eventing, the stadium jumping part. Of course, not very practical to jump a horse in carriage. Uh, the horse can jump, but the carriage not so much. So uh, they created an obstacle test around cones. So think they're not exactly traffic cones but think about traffic cones a couple you know this much distance two or three inches on either side of your wheels and then uh, you have to do a course not unlike a show jumping course of about 26 pairs of cones within the time allowed um, where you're not allowed to knock a, a ball that's similar to a tennis ball off the top of the cones and that shows that the horse can come back from uh, the rigors of uh, the cross country or, uh, you know, war battle work and get back into doing its, uh, typical routine in a very calm, sane manner. So th- those are the roots of the combined ride as I know. them. Do you have a favorite portion of competition? You know, that's a great question. And I think it has a lot to do with the horse. So yeah. for example, 
I have an indoor team that uh, we have an indoor sport that represents sort of more the cross country and cones driving portion of it. Um, they're little small lipids on our horses. Typically their dressage is not very good typically, but they have to be super fast and they have to be very agile and very drivable. And so when I'm driving my indoor team, of course, I like doing things like marathon, but doing dressage with them, not so much fun. And for example, with my outdoor team, I have a fantastic dressage team in the moment, super fun to do dressage with. And certainly they're good in the cross country, but they're not as good as, for example, my indoor team would be if they went in the cross country. And I think part of that is balancing um, not only what they're good at, but what, 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 is, what you're good at. And it's, I, I think... Sometimes the difference between good and great and horse people are people who are able to say, I can work with every kind of horse, but what kind of horse am I good at working at, working with, and knowing, you know, hey, that's the type for me. You know, some people, if I liken it to the jumping, I like one that's a little little colder. You need a little bit more. You need to inspire them a little bit more and push them on and be a little bit more encouraging. And some people like the jumping horse or the driving horse that's you know, uh, you know, hot beyond words. That's just yeah. not really my horse. I'm not saying when I teach people or if I, if I have one that's super hot, I can't manage them. Yeah, I, I can. But if you look, I think what a lot of people forget to do is look back at your record. And sometimes what you think you like and what you're good at are different. And um, I've had a lot of success with the a little bit underachiever horse that wants to be super fit because I like to work horses, make them fit. Sometimes those super hot fit ones that get, you know, fit off of air need a little less work, but I, I'm, I'm a guy who likes to train and a little bit, uh, and practice. And, uh, there's, there's a, I'm a real planner and the easiest way to do that is with horses that you can, you know, put some miles on and, and, and practice and hone your skills. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Speaking of type, do all of your horses have to be bays? I feel like you're <laughs> all <laughs> That's a good Yeah. So uh, I started with brown horses and bay horses uh, a while ago. Other than my indoor team, they're all gray. They're bay. But then it's very funny. Nobody ever calls me about a good black horse or a good chestnut horse. They just don't call me. But breeders in Holland or whatever, they'll call me and say, hey, I have a horse that looks exactly like this horse of yours. And so for a while there, I had two with uh, big white blazes. And then all of a sudden, everything I'm getting offered has white blazes. I'm like, I, I don't mind uh, white blazes, but I just like really good horses. But it was very funny. I helped a student of mine uh, buy sort of a dark bay, black, you know, have nearly black horse last year. And uh, now people call about those because they know, oh, he bought one of those. So I, I helped a student of mine buy it, but I don't know. The, uh, I guess the, the good reason to have brown horses is, you know, horses like to roll in it in the stalls and brown mm-hmm. horses, you never see it. I can yes. tell you when we're <laughs> at the indoor world cup shows with the gray lipids on our team, they're the dirtiest creatures in the world. And I'm just not sure they're any dirtier than my brown horses. Mm-hmm. I just can't see it. That is a universal truth. I mean, with all of my like white and gray ponies, the amount of purple shampoo that we go through uh, is unreal. But you know, the other ones are just as dirty. It's just... Yeah. You just can't see it. <laughs> yep. Uh, besides yeah. color, what do you look for when you are... Obviously, it's 
case by case scenario, depending on what you're doing, what you're working on, how you need to kind of fill up your team. But in general, what are you looking for? What qualities does an ideal horse possess for you? So what's really important, uh, if I'm talking about the outdoor team, you know, typically I'm looking for brown horses because they match my brown team and I'm looking for horses around 16 hand, 16 one. So from 161 centimeters or something to 167. After that, they just get a little bit too big. And when you start trying to drive them with other horses that are very different in size, I could list 10 examples of times it works but much easier if they're kind of a little bit balanced in, 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 in the size. Then I personally like horses that have a little bit more sort of a knee movement, like a old sort of fashion Holsteiner kind of movement than, you know, a Hanoverian daisy cutter horse. They just make a little bit better horses in the driving in the cross country. And so after those things, I start looking at their athletic ability for the dressage, i.e. the movement, you know, angle of the shoulder, structure of the neck, things like that. Um, character comes in there. So when I'm buying, and sometimes I buy horses for driving that have only been riding horses or really don't know much. Um, but I, you know, you can see the character with a horse that doesn't know much. Um, you know, I can long line a horse that's really young for a little while and you know, you can let the lunge line sneak under their tail and see what the reaction is. You know, if their mm-hmm. reaction is, I'm going to keep dicking your teeth in, probably not the one with the right character, but you need a little grit too. You know, you also can't have one without any life or any, uh, there's this wonderful word in horses without any spirit, because when it's 85 degrees on cross country day in Aachen, you need one that has a little bit of grit and says, nah, it's just warm today. Uh, whereas if you have one that's, you know, too amiable and it kind of, you know, it seems like those are the ones who want to quit on you. Definitely. Obviously, effective communication with horses in any discipline is super critical. You've been quoted saying that you believe a true horseman is someone who can think exactly like a horse and understand them quite well. So what do you think are some of the most effective ways to communicate with horses in general, but especially in your discipline? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of it goes back to what Ray Hunt said, uh, who was sort of the forefather of natural horsemanship. I think, you know, the Monty Roberts and the Pat Pirellis and those guys would all sort of credit Ray Hunt a bit. And there's a wonderful quote from Ray Hunt that says, you know, make doing the the right thing easy and make doing the wrong thing hard. And I think that works with children. I think that works with uh, relationships with friends and uh, personal relationships. And I think that also uh, works really well with horses. And so I think if you can try and find a way to set them up for success, the great thing about horses is uh, they don't teach you, they don't say things differently than what they mean. So, for example, a person might say, oh, I really, I, I'm enamored by you. I, I, I really like you. You're, I respect you. You're fantastic. And then do a bunch of things that are very clearly disrespectful. Um, humans do very confusing things like that. The wonderful thing about horses is they kind of just say it how they feel it. And the other piece of it, I think, that's very interesting when you talk about communication uh, that's really important with horses and I think has helped so if you, we all talk about uh, IQ or, you know, 
uh, intellectual intelligence, but there's also EQ, which is your emotional intelligence. And I think one thing that horses have uh, taught people uh, very well is to, to get over things. The reality is in people, it takes us about 38 seconds. You know, we're talking about nature to process an emotion. That's why a baby can go from laughing to crying to laughing all within a course of a minute. Um, they can do that because it actually just takes 38 seconds to process an emotion. And this stupid human trick of I'm going to hold a grudge for 10 years and we're going to talk about it at the next funeral or something like that, that's a learned behavior. So the wonderful thing I think that horsemen can learn from their horse is if they can be a little bit, I don't have a better word to use and it's probably not the right one, they can be a little bit more bipolar and a little bit more process the emotion of like, hey, that's a behavior I don't like. Let's refocus you into this behavior, which I really, which is going to be helpful. And instead of like, a horse does not understand, in my opinion, this is just based on my experience, you know, you holding a grudge about something they did yesterday. That doesn't work. You know, it's, it's no different than somebody who, you know, gives them a little bit more hay because they were good today and I'm going to give you less hay because you were bad. I, I think that's not sensical. That's like, and I don't think that works with people. And I think the blessing of working with horses in my life is it's helped me develop my emotional intelligence to be able to process emotions really quickly and be able to say, okay, you know, what happened here? How do I correct that? And then try to get back to making the easy thing, uh, making the right thing easy. And so you need a little bit almost of a bipolar piece of your personality where you can go, okay, that's not good. Let's correct that. But no, we're still friends. Like if you do it instead of, I find a lot of uh, people when I teach, they're, they're upset about something that happened 10 minutes ago. I'm like, mm, this isn't going to help you. You have to be the happy, friendly, chipper, good, good leader to your horse and fair and correct. And, but you can't hold grudges with horses. And I think that that's something that every horse person uh, has as an advantage because if you're successful with horses, you know how to process emotions very quickly and say, okay, how do we spend more time on the solution than the problem? I wanted to thank our sponsor today, O3 Animal Health. If you haven't heard about them before, their signature product is Equine Omega Complete. It's a specifically formulated blend that does so much more than simply add weight if needed or produce a shiny hair coat for your horse. These products support healthy cell function in the horse. They cleanse the cell membrane. Every cell in a horse's body is surrounded by fat. Their products provide the healthiest fat possible so that nutrients and waste can get in and out of the cells. O3 Animal Health is used by some of the top horse breeders, trainers, horse owners, vets, and it supplies a complete balance of beneficial fatty acids to provide the perfect fat for proper cell function. If you want to learn more, I had Kathleen Downs, who is a representative over at O3 Animal Health on the podcast. She was episode 122. If you want to go check it out, or you can visit their website at o the number three animalhealth.com. And if you want to try out any products, use the code podcast for $10 off any product. Thank you so much, O3 Animal Health. All right, let's get back to the episode. You have obviously won a lot, but for each win, there's 
you know, a handful of losses that go with it. And I think that's just, yeah. that's just the, that's just our you're, sport. You're suffering or learning. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Um, what is your perspective on losing or maybe having what some may call like a disappointing performance? Maybe we would um, say a learning opportunity. What do you take from each loss and how have you let it influence um, your next ride or your next win? Yeah, so that's exactly it. It's, you know, how much time do you need? How much, how little emotional intelligence do you have? How much suffering do you need to go before you start saying, what can I learn? And um, I think something that I've been fortunate enough to have is the ability to look hard at, you know, okay, when it doesn't go well, what didn't go well? For example, in 2006 at the World Equestrian Games, uh, in Aachen, I went off course in the cones the last day. That was devastating. I came back two years later at the next world championships, the next huge championship opportunity, and I won my first individual medal. Why? Because that day, when that didn't go well, my chef to keep at the time, Ms. Uh, Ed Young, uh, came to me and he said, are you going to let this define you? Are you going to be, are you, is today going to define you? Or are you going to, take this as an opportunity. And I literally sat down and went through a huge like strategic analysis, did this, you know, a, a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats of my program and had peers of mine on the US team, like sit down and like had them give, get their thoughts and coaches and trainers and people around had everybody kind of weigh in. And, you know, by having all those people in a safe environment talking about my program and not having any ego attached to it, I was able to take those things, say, okay, here's the things that seem like the number one priorities, the number two, the number three priorities of things we have to change. Uh, how do we be, you know, how are we a little bit more critical so we can train a little bit better? And sure enough, uh, two years later, first American ever to win an individual medal in uh, the forehand sport and combined driving. Uh, and everybody said, whoa. And I said, it wasn't whoa. It was the dressage part was already pretty good. I think I won in 2006, the dressage of the world championships. I needed to keep that good. I needed to really improve the cross country. Uh, and so what I did is worked hard on that, worked hard on the cones driving and you know, then I got lucky, I guess some people would say, but, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And we got lucky and stood on the metal podium, you know, and have done that a lot since then. And I think it's a lot just from sitting down and, and you know, being able to say I'm suffering or I'm learning and uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good student. I think the other thing that's very important that you see some people miss is you have to have that same discipline when you're winning. You have to take every, you know, uh, we've been fortunate enough to win um, 18 national championships, but you have to take each of them as their own thing. And there's no given that this coming June that I'm, you know, going to win my 19th U.S. national championship. Is, is there, there's no guarantee of that. But I'm working hard at it every day and I'm looking at, hey, what needs, what could be a little bit better? What do I need to do? What are the, what are the threats? What, what, what are the outside forces and what can I control and what can I control? And I think some of it is also taking the things that you can't control and saying, 
it, it, that just will be like it is. I'm, I'm going to, but, uh, you know, there are things that I can control and I can learn from. So not unlike we have the world equestrian games, uh, driving in Pratoni in September in, in Italy. And, you know, I don't, I'm the week before that in May at the Royal Windsor in England. So it doesn't really work for my team of horses to go from Royal Windsor to, you know, 2000 kilometers away and compete in Italy. So, you know, my protege student uh, is going to go there, but our truck will go there. Our team of people, critical people will go there. We'll learn, hey, we stopped at the stopover place that we were thinking of. Mm, that doesn't work. The truck doesn't fit in there. So we're gathering a lot of information so that we can make a really good plan going forward. And I'm a, I, I think something that if you look at the likes of Ludger Bierbaum, he always said, I'm not the most, uh, and I see this in myself, I don't think I'm particularly the most talented driver in the world. Um, I think I have talent. I think I have some technical skills. Yeah, that's evidenced by by the record. But I challenge anybody to manage me, how to organize me. And that's the same reason that uh, people like Ludger have ended up on the podium when it needed to happen again, 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 because they know how to make a plan. They understand that making a decision day to day about what a horse should do before the championships, uh, when you're in the midst of that kind of pre-championship frenzy, not, a, not smart. So I'm always making training plans weeks in advance. Of course, they're horses, they're live animals. Sometimes you have to edit or you have to shift a little bit, but I always make sure I have a plan because I know nervous people or anxious people, they sometimes make the wrong decisions. So I try and have the decisions already made when I'm able to do that from a position of perspective. Definitely. I think that you really hit the nail on the head with the emotional aspect, especially in uh, someone in your position who um, has experienced a lot of wins and championships that it's real. It can be challenging for many people in that position to not expect the win and anything short of that is an absolute failure. I've experienced that, um, you know, with people that I've worked with in the past where it's just, it almost, it, it almost becomes like a lose lose situation because either you win and it's not a joy it's expected you know it's sure. just like you know something you have to do now or um you don't win and it you know your world is ending so um i think having the perspective that you're not guaranteed anything is is i mean easier said than done but an extremely important perspective to have going into a sport that you're you can be a part of for decades and you're going to have losses and i think that's important to remember and and if you see those losses as opportunities to learn you know that's that's what they are they're opportunities to to learn hey what can i do better what do i need to focus on a little bit more Let's hear a little bit of your training program, Mr. Organization, several weeks out when you are, you know, still kind of fine tuning some skills, maintaining that like, fitness level. What is a, what is a normal week, several weeks out of a competition look like for you? Yeah. So, and some of it has to do with just some basic science, right? And I try and bring basic science into it. So if I like to look at the world equestrian games where we were fortunate enough to help lead the U.S. team to uh, a team gold medal and win an individual silver medal. I looked at it and I said, okay, you know, I know that about, we have to have our biggest condition day about two weeks out, you know, two weeks out from a, a big event, horses are not losing condition, you know, so we, we need to 
some somewhere around 10 to you know 14 days before we need to have our last stress day and after that we need to start backing up on the horses a little bit and making sure they're going into this championship at the best so i'll start there uh typically i have one condition day per week uh that's under saddle that's typically horses galloping either on hills uh or on um on a racetrack and i try and do interval training and that's fairly to me that's very technical training i don't even need to do it myself you know i want heart rates to get up to 180 you can use a heart rate monitor you don't need to guess that kind of stuff and i try and emulate the cross-country parts of our obstacles are about uh, two minutes at maximum long so we gallop for two minutes get the heart rates to 180 back down to 120 in the trot then back up to 180 and just teach the, the hearts and muscles so you condition it to recover we do that we do hill work as well with the carriage uh just because it's less miles you know they they, they get stronger do some uh water treadmill work which of course everybody thinks that's conditioning work but the reality is when you take lactate levels on horses which i've done some studying uh for like a new try on was going to be a very hot day so lactate was going to be important the horses were going to build a lot of lactic acid in their muscles but you have to you have to actually study that you have to train them have a stress day see whose lactate levels are high and low and see who naturally processes lactate better and i usually have those condition days they have one day off they do some water treadmill work which is typically to me that's like bodybuilding work because you're kind of exaggerating the gait of the horse they're trying to kind of step over they're trying to step out of the um, helps the dressage stuff um, and makes them a little bit stronger but you're not building lactate um, doing that or not getting you know massive heart rates ever in a water treadmill we do some double lunging or uh, work with some long lining or double like two two reins um that sort of helps with some of the dressage stuff getting them to work a little bit more over their backs and uh, build their backs depending on the horse they all have a little bit uh something unique that's unique for them either riding single riding and horses because they i have a horse that does more riding work than driving he's just he's at his best driving when he's doing more riding work but that might change too. I have a six-year-old right now that it seems like when you drive him single and in pair, you make him a little bit too hot and forward. But if he does a lot of riding work, when you go to drive him in the lead of the team where they don't really have to pull the carriage, he's at his best. And I've just learned to kind of keep my ego out of it and say, well, okay, I don't ride anymore. So somebody else has to do that. But you have to have good teamwork and communication with, with, with the people around you. And then I usually try to practice leading up to a big championship. I try to practice the cones driving once a week, and I try and practice the dressage test once a week. Um, and then I do some cross country once a week. So that's kind of what it looks like. And uh, I always try to give the horses a good rest before they go into uh, something big, uh, because I feel like it's you're just going to create a strain on them. And I've seen so many people ruin horses the weekend before a championship trying to train them. Most training in my basic, basic idea is everything good with a horse is learned very slow and very methodically. You have to step on every step. If you're not done training the horse by the time it gets to the horse show or the weekend before the horse show, you've done something wrong. You know, you might be able to, 
you know, that one likes to jig at the end of the dressage test. Sure. Maybe you can teach him that the end of the walk and the dressage ends a little bit further. Maybe you can teach a little bit something, but very methodical and slow. Um, it seems like the things that horses learn very quickly are bad things. You know, they'll have a bad experience and that will affect them and they'll learn that quickly. So I'm usually just before the big championships. And the other piece of it is for me, I also try and prioritize my own rest. Um, so for example, like Aachen this year, typically I'll train horses on Friday uh, in the morning. I'll get out of the barn by maybe 12, one o'clock uh, on the Friday before Aachen. I'll go somewhere. Uh, now I might just, I might travel with my sister or somebody like that, try to get away, sleep, rest, recharge, and then I'll come back sort of to train on Sunday afternoon. And then by it being Sunday afternoon, I'm also not going to do anything too strenuous. You know, I usually go for a little bit of a jog in the forest with the horses or something like that. That's where I've had a lot of success, but every one of these horses is unique. And as much as you have to try to bring them to your own program, um, and they have to, you know, try to adapt to you. Um, I have found that I haven't found many horses that really respond really well if lead, just going into a show, you're, you're really pushing, pushing them super hard. I'd rather push really hard a couple of weeks before and then say, hold on, we're, we're there or thereabouts. Let's back up here. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. What would you say is one of the most challenging things like i guess like maneuvers or parts of training that that horses in general tend to struggle with that takes a long time for them to get through it and understand it so i I think one thing that's uh, not unlike dressage you know you have to build this a suspension bridge if you may of the back that helps create a connection with the horse Uh, And that comes from the fundamental work of the horse. And if the horse has this idea to hollow or to put their back down and their head up every time they have to pull and something heavy or something happens, uh, it seems like you're building sort of all the counter muscles. So I would suggest one of the fundamental hardest things to teach them is to sit a little bit behind, try and shift, you know, have 60% of their weight on their hind legs instead of, because if you just think about the anatomy of the horse, there's a lot more muscle in the hind end, better to, instead of dragging themselves on their front end. But it seems like when they start, they all have that kind of propensity to want to drag themselves on the front end. So I think once you get the back kind of in order and you get them really working over the back, I think you're, uh, you're really in a, in a good way. I'm also not a big tricker guy. You know, there's some people who are like, oh, you can change this bit and you can do that. I never have any success building medals on a trick because there's a trick and that trick doesn't work. And then you need a new trick and I don't have the book with that trick. And then you got to ask some tricker, how do you do that? It's all short term. And uh, that's also part of the reason I don't teach many clinics because um, I find typical clinics with horses to be bad horsemanship. And I don't say that as a negative thing about people who are my peers who teach a lot of clinics they're a great source of revenue and it's a great way to, you know, be able to impact a lot of people in a short period of time. But the truth of the matter is I always think about it like what is a horse going to learn really great in three days? So the only way to, you know, the, the student walks in, whether that's in three days or you get an hour a day for three days or two days, 
and you actually have to make a, a productive change in that two or three hours. That's a big ask. It usually doesn't work. In my experience, you know, it works with a trick. Oh, well, let's put this different bit in or what. But it, ultimately, the best horses in the world, they just go in normal bits. And I, it's funny because I collect bits I this, and I even still buy bits, you know, because they don't eat and they're, you know, they're collectible and they're, you know, I've done it since I was in my teenage. And I, so I have all sorts of crazy bits hanging in the wall, but everything I use every day is pretty daggone straightforward. It's, there's not a lot of tricks there. Not to say sometimes I won't use a bit to kind of help for a teaching aha, but most things that are sustainable are not based on tricks. So you find a lot of horses that go to clinics, they get much better in three days and then they go home and four days later, it, it's worse than it was. Is that, is that what a clinic's about? Not for me. What would you say is an area of the industry that you are passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Wow. Um, there are a few of them and some of them come from like super basic horse stuff. So uh, one thing that I like talking about that I got back to. So I grew up with uh, draft horses where we were feeding horses really basic stuff. We were feeding them uh, staple ingredients. We were feeding them barley, oats, beet pulp, bran, some oil, like really basic, basic stuff and some vitamins and minerals. And then I'm not suggesting that there aren't good uh, manufactured horse feed products on the market. I'm sure there are. But because of our traveling from Europe, you know, spending a few months in Europe, or for example, in a few weeks, we're going to go off to Windsor. But the horses are going to arrive on Thursday in, uh, in Holland. They're going to go on Monday night to England. And then they're going to start competing on the, on the next Thursday. So one week later, yeah, I could bring some feed for a week, probably, but that transition was going to have to happen. And I learned in Tryon, you know, horses came back and there were three weeks and then there was going to have to be a feed transition. So I was like, how do we do this? And then uh, what I did is I worked uh, with a dear friend, Joe Pagan uh, from KER, who's one of the sort of world leaders in equine nutrition. And I said, how do I get back to how we used to feed draft horses and, you know, get back to feeding them ingredients because I could buy oats in Holland. I could buy oats in the United States. I could buy beet pulp in Holland. I could buy. And so we have a, uh, what some people would probably argue is a very arduous feeding system in terms of feeding horses because we're really buying ingredients and mixing them. But it's funny if you go to, some top racehorse training stables, they are they do still the same thing, um, and they're cooking flaxseed, doing things like that. And um, I think that's something that people don't like to talk about because when you're running a big barn, it's just it's such a big project. Uh, my feed room doesn't look like a extra stall with a couple of trash cans full of horse feed and some bags stacked up against the wall. It really looks like. You know, there are a lot of different bins and things getting mixed. And I feel good about that. And I think it's helped the horse's health, overall health, not unlike, you know, processed food for my kids probably isn't as good as, you know, when they eat broccoli and they eat chicken. They don't probably need breaded chicken breasts and, you know, I don't know, 
some strange, you know, processed vegetable thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a good point. How have you learned what works best with your horses? I mean, do you work with your vet? Is it just like some trial and error? How do you, how have you kind of figured out the concoction that seems to work? Uh, in terms of feed or just in terms of everything? In terms of feed. Yeah. So I've worked a lot with Joe Pagan, who's, uh, you know, remember a lot of vets, I'm not suggesting that some vets don't know a lot about feeding horses, but they usually take one or two equine nutrition courses in, in, at, at vet school. It's not much. So yeah, there are some basic things. Those are given. Try and work with nutritionists. And one of the fun things about being a forehand driver is I have these four horses that I have to balance what they do and their energy levels because they have to work together. So it doesn't do me any good if you know one's ready to go in the ring after two minutes and the other one's ready after 22 minutes, but then the one who's ready after two minutes is tired after 22. So, but it's interesting if you think about feed as energy and you can balance those things and say, okay, the more starch I'm going to get more, that's going to turn into sugars and glucose. And the more fiber uh, is going to turn into a sort of a slower burning energy, fiber and fats. Um, so one thing that I use is the ability to manipulate each horse's feet a little bit and to change their behavior to be a little bit more like the group of horses they work with. That's amazing. It's, I mean, it's definitely a science, but I think that I would venture to say not many people do that. But I think I, that, that like I, having that balance is crucial. I, I think it's a, it's a unique uh, situation and opportunity. And I'm very passionate about that. I'm very passionate about feet, for example. Um, I guess you'd say I have a horse foot fetish. Um, and a lot of that comes probably from draft horses where they always try and big feet. And, you know, sure, there are these adages of, you know, no foot, no, no horse or something like that. But I'm, I'm big on, you know, you can spend $200 with the, blacks, with the right blacksmith or you can spend $2,000 with a vet. It's up to you. But if you have a bad blacksmith, and that doesn't mean because you spend, them, spend a lot of money with them that they're good. But if you have a, a, a bad farrier, um, eventually you can spend the money with a vet. So you might as well find somebody who understands balance and understands your sport, what you're trying to achieve. And, um, and these are horses, right? They're not all cut out of the same cookie cutter mold, understanding why, why different things are. And, um, not to say we don't have our own challenges. And of course, with every challenge you learn. Well, Chester, thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with me, giving me a little way to understand the driving world a little bit more because I know for me, I didn't know a lot before. So I think just figuring out a little bit about what you do is so inspiring. And there still are so many similarities of you know what I do in the hunter jumper world. So I think it's so cool. And um, I wish you all the best. I love continuing to watch your journey and seeing. I'm excited to see how June goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm super excited for the summer. We have a bunch of great horses together. Super excited for my niece, uh, Chloe Reed, who she's been named to the shortlist for the uh, U.S. Uh, teams this summer. And uh, I had a lot of fun this past summer. She lived here in Ocala and we shared the training field and uh, super proud of her as a horsewoman as well. And she, I'm not saying that I've influenced her a lot, but I think she, you know, had, had in places had her eyes open and said, wow, you know, um, and she's not the typical, uh, you know, horse rider who shows up and the groom has everything put together and tacked up. Uh, I put more horses, I put more shoes 
packed more shoes on for her this past summer than I did for myself. Um, <laughs> just because she was like, oh, wow. And I said, oh, you know, I can teach you how to do this. This isn't, you know, putting a shoe back on isn't rocket science. And uh, she was really interested. So it's, there's a lot of things you can learn. Um, I loved it when I was talking to um, Philip Dutton, I think before one Olympics and he was having some problems with the halt on one of his horses. And he said, ah, you know, do you have any good ideas, Chester? And I said, yeah, I would talk to like a hackney trainer, a saddlebred trainer, because they, those horses, like you tell them to stop and stand still at park, like, Burr. sure. You may not want them to be like the hackneys or the Morgans that park with their hind legs three feet behind them. But I would talk to those people because to them, they know exactly how to teach that stuff. And I think if you can take little things from, from different places, um, you can, you can learn a lot. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. You're welcome. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.